Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to another edition of the Sam Vassell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now, I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Some things to talk about today. There's some new details regarding the new Loki television show that I want to talk about. Michael Bay's quarantine film finally has its main characters. And the X-Men film, the film from 2000, turns 20 years old today. I want to talk about the impact that it's had on the superhero genre, the comic book genre, and the legacy it left behind in regards to the X-Men film franchise in general. But that'll be towards the end of the show. The first thing that I do want to talk about is kind of like how I started the Sam Bissell podcast yesterday with some unfortunate tra- tragic news that uh, tragically was kind of foreshadowed a few days ago, and that is the unfortunate death of Naya Rivera, who was found at Lake Piru in California. Yesterday, the the officers and, and officials confirmed that they found her body, and she passes away, and she dies at the age of 33. For the fans of Naya Rivera, she's somebody that is well-known for her role in Glee and the legacy that her character, Santana Lopez, left behind. And I'm not somebody who is a Glee fan. I'm personally with somebody who never even really watched the show. I heard about it. I knew about it. But just for me personally, I could never really get into it. But for a lot of people that I know, a lot of friends of mine, that show meant so much to them. And one of the reasons was because of the character of Naya Rivera and her legacy of leaving behind somebody that was represented in the LGBTQ community, somebody who was really one of the first outed characters as being a lesbian on a major network in which Glee was on Fox on Channel 5. And so that was a major, major deal. And kind of the the, the stereotype breaking that Ryan Murphy did with this show is really kind of trailblazing when you put the, the television show in its perspective. And Naya Rivera was, was one of those reasons, and her character was one of those kind of barrier breakers that a lot of people have grown a fan base around. And She's somebody who was a tremendous singer. I remember the, the last few days I've really kind of gone back and looked at some of her performances on Glee. And, and the one that really stood out to me is when in season five she sings um, You're Gonna Love Me. or, or, or it, It's a really, really good song. And it's a really good cover of a song that I highly recommend. And she was somebody that had an, an incredible voice and somebody that was taken away too short in, in her life. Again, 33 years old is way too young. And when you hear the story of the of from the officials, from the police, of what happened on the day on July 8th when she first was reported missing, that she really seems like it just drowned from the lake in which she helped their son, save her son's life. And so it, one life was saved, and unfortunately another one what left us in, in a tragic sense. So my heart goes out to the, the family and the friends of Naya Rivera and also to the to the Glee community and, and to the Glee cast because this is not really the first time they've kind of really gone around a tragedy like this. They went through it with Corey Monteith seven years ago, actually, to the day yesterday that he was he overdosed on drugs and, and tragically passed away. So this is something that isn't, isn't new to them, unfortunately, but it's nonetheless something that is really tragic and sad. For somebody that was just going out for a fun time with their son and wasn't able to come back from the day. And, and it's just tragic. And it just, I think, goes to show things that have happened in 2020 in general with COVID-19. And, and you go back to earlier in the year with Kobe Bryant and the nine souls, including his, that passed away on that tragic helicopter crash. That life is short and you got to do the best that you possibly can with the time that you're given with your life. And, and this is just, uh, unfortunately, another example of just holding on to everything in your life. So again, my hearts go out to the family and friends of Naya Rivera as she passes and dies at the age of 33. 
guys, what were your favorite memories of Naya Rivera if you were a fan of hers? Was it something on Glee? Was it her latest project that she was doing on Step Up that went from YouTube to Stars, Or was it something younger in her career when she started acting at four years old on Royal Family? Let me know what your favorite aspects and favorite moments seeing Naya Rivera on the little screen or the big screen were. And let me know in the comments section Moving on now to some television news to talk about real quick, and, and one has to do with the Disney Plus Marvel Studio shows that are being set to debut in the next few years. Right now, we don't know really what's going to happen with Falcon and the Winter Soldier or WandaVision if they're going to come out this year be delayed till next year. And one of the shows that is on the early docket to come out is The Loki Show with Tom Hiddleston. It'll focus on his counterpart in Avengers Endgame that in a, in a separate timeline in Avengers was able to get away from New York and is going on his own mischievous mischievous adventures and, and doing sinister stuff or whatever he's really doing. And we haven't really heard a lot of details other than some casting announcements. And they started filming a little bit before COVID-19 locked down their production. And the showrunner, Kate Heron, who is also showrunner for the, the acclaimed Netflix show that is on the, the streaming service right now that a lot of people are talking about, Sex Education, is creating this show. And on Disney+, Plus, if you go, if you type up Falcon and the Winter Soldier, WandaVision, Loki, you're able to see the, the homepages for those shows. There's nothing on it except for the, the big game, the Super Bowl ad that it premiered in, in February. But everything else is just a little description of what the, the, the log line of the show is that Disney and Marvel has put out. But other than that, there's nothing. But the showrunner decided to put out a little detail about the, the show, and that is to expect the unexpected. That's all she really put on, on Instagram. And she says that it's going to be a science fiction show, and for a show like this, it makes sense to kind of really – you don't know what to expect with somebody who is the god of mischief who kind of does a lot of double takes and, and turns on a lot of people. What are we going to explore with this Loki, because this isn't the Loki that we knew from the first Thor in 2011 and how we saw him in the Dark World, the Avengers, Thor Ragnarok, and then what happened to him in Avengers Infinity War. This is a Loki that still hasn't gone through the journey of kind of becoming a, a anti-protagonist in a way, somebody who hasn't become an anti-hero in a sense, somebody who is still has evil on his side and somebody who's still kind of more of a bad guy than he is more of an anti-hero. So to kind of see this new journey that he takes, I think it's going to be interesting in how it, it probably is going to help introduce the multiverse that is going to seem like maybe be teased in WandaVision then lead into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So to kind of see this new Loki maybe have a role in that will be interesting. So this seems like it's going to be one of the more twisty, turvy kind of Disney Plus shows that we're going to be getting that is going to add some new elements to the MCU that we haven't seen before. So I'm excited for that. And again, I'm hoping that we get new details for the Marvel shows sometime soon. But it seems like with the COVID-19 pandemic, Marvel Studios, it seems like they're just trying to rearrange themselves in some kind of a way so they can present themselves in a more in a more unified or, or neat kind of way where they, they have an idea of what their plans are going to be now that everything has kind of been kind of deconstructed and twisted around with the COVID-19 pandemic that has occurred over the last few months. What do you guys think about the, the small details that are being given out about the Loki show? Let me know in the comment section and leave your thoughts. And then speaking of COVID-19, there's some production news that I want to talk about, specifically casting news for the new Michael Bay produced quarantine film, or not really quarantine film, but, but pandemic film that is coming out in the next few years, it seems like. And 
this is a movie that has found its main characters. And before I get into that, this is a, a movie that, again, is produced by Michael Bay. It's not being directed. And it's going to be one of the first films to be shot back in L.A. in the California area with the new implementations of the COVID safety regulations implored by the guilds, by Hollywood, the, the state government. And so Michael Bay wanted to produce this movie and wanted to do it. And they hit some speed bumps along the way, but it seems like everything has ironed itself out. They have a cast. And like I said before, they've found their two main leads. And it's two pretty big up-and-coming names that I think people that know the CW and specifically Disney Channel will know these names. And the film will be led by KJ Appa, who, if you know that name, he is on the CW show Riverdale, and Sophia Carson, who is on the Descendants movies on Disney Channel and is a really good singer as well. And they will be leading this main movie with the likes of Demi Moore, Bradley Whitford, Craig Robinson, and Paul Walter Hauser in their supporting roles as well. And the main premise of this film is that it's the telling of a budding love story between a motorbike courier named Nico who will be played by KJ Appa, who has a rare immunity, and Sarah, who will be played by Sophia Carson, a young artist. To be with the one he loves, our hero must overcome martial law, murderous vigilantes, and a powerful, well-connected family helmed by a matriarch who will stop at nothing to protect her family and maintain her way of life. And the interesting thing about this is when you read about it, it sounds, it sounds like it's going to be its own kind of people are going to be in close proximity of one another and how are they going to shoot something like this? Well, what's interesting is they said that with this production that a lot of the characters, a lot of the, the cast will be on their own. It'll be kind of like they're on their own standalone adventures. They'll be shooting scenes maybe two or three people at a time or by themselves. It sounds like really the, the KJ Appa character, Nico, is going to be by himself for a lot of scenes. Same thing with the Sophia Carson character, Sarah. And the, the other characters might be in some kind of a vicinity of one another, but it sounds like everyone's going to have their own roles to play in this film so that they can kind of limit the people that they can have on set at a given amount of time. So this sounds interesting. It sounds like it's going to be a, a very interesting kind of action film, a thriller film that shoots in the midst of a COVID-19 kind of pandemic that we're living in right now with these new regulations. What's an action film going to look like? What are intimate scenes going to look like? This is a love story, as it says in the synopsis. So how is that going to play out without kind of being able to kind of do the things that you want to do maybe before COVID-19 that you have to do now so that there's not a lot of close contact if the actors potentially don't feel like they're comfortable with doing that. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this film. This is something that doesn't have a lot of other details regarding release date, but it's going to production now, it seems like, or within the next few days. So this is definitely one to keep an eye out for. Again, Michael Bay is not directing this movie. It sounds like something Michael Bay would direct, but it's going to be helmed by Adam Mason, and it'll be produced by Michael Bay through his production studio what do you guys think about this news what do you guys think about the casting of this film kj Apa, sophia carson i think personally it's it's a good choice i think again two up-and-comers that have a big base in terms of their followings on social media and people know them through popular franchise films through major companies like riverdale and the descendants on disney so i definitely think you can get a, a younger audience involved and people that if they see the michael bay name or if they want to watch this film for the action or whatever it, it in cases you have different a aspects and different quadrants of a demographic that you can include with this movie. But what do you think about the casting? What do you think about the, this production for the film? Let me know in the comment section and leave your thoughts. Moving on now to some details regarding a, a film that is set to come out 
in the next few weeks called The Card Counter, and it has found a brand new home at Focus Features, and there's a brand new poster for this film, which stars Oscar Isaac, Ty Sheridan, William Dafoe, and Tiffany Haddish. It's directed and written by Paul Schrader, who has written classic films such as Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, and The Last Temptation of Christ. And it tells, it's a story about Tell, a former servantsman who now lives as a gambler who does traveling from one casino to the next when a vulnerable and angry young man named Kirk, who is played by Ty Sheridan, asks for his help in exacting revenge on a military colonel. Tell tells sells a chance at redemption. His decision has unforeseen consequences. However, as keeping Kirk on the straight and narrow proves impossible and drags Tell back into the darkness of his past. And again, this film is picked up by Focus Features, which acquired another film called Armageddon Time from James Gray, which is starring Anne Hathaway, Oscar Isaac as well. And this sounds like an interesting film, especially when you have somebody who is as acclaimed as somebody like Paul Schrader is in in creating this kind of movie. It sounds really kind of indie budgeted level, and it sounds like they want to have this available for theatrical release, but depending on where we're going with COVID-19, that might not be possible. So it'll be interesting to see where they go with this and how really they come across of, of doing this film. I'm interested in seeing a trailer for this. The poster looks kind of interesting and I'm all for Oscar Isaac. I'm a big fan of his and, and the work that he's done, not just within Star Wars, but inside Lewin Davis and even some of his earlier early films. I remember watching Sucker Punch with Zack Snyder and that was an interesting film in which he was really a part of, but he's kind of been somebody that is on the up and coming, of course, with Dune and he's got this. So he's definitely a, a star to look out for, especially after the big productions that he put on with Star Wars. And then speaking of theaters and closing down, it seems like California is doing the exact same thing as it seems that what started out as a reopening phase seems like everything is just kind of backtracking down now for California. As yesterday, when I was talking about the the the, the expectations and the potential for a lot of the analysts that were talking about theaters not being able to reopen again until September, it seems like California is regressing a little bit more than we had hoped for, especially with the uptick of cases going on, not just in Florida, but in California, in Texas. And it seems like it's not just the theaters, but bars, restaurants, everything is really starting to shut down again in California. And I get this is just another kind of blow to the theaters in the respect that they're probably not going to have the releases of Tenet and Mulan and these other films ready for August if it's going to take another few weeks for the major markets to open back up again. Again, California is at least one or two in terms of the biggest markets for theatrical release. Then you have New York, which right now the governor is just trying to make sure that a resurgence doesn't happen within New York again. And the fact that you don't have theaters even a part of the final phase of reopening, he's he's kind of keeping that in the same wing as the as Broadway and concerts of opening theaters back up again for the masses to be a part of again. And I think the fact that California has decided to close multiple indoor activities, including theaters, that it's going to be a while before Governor Cuomo or the state of New York even recommends putting theaters back into play. So I think it's it's just another blow for NATO and for the theater owners of wanting to put their theaters back into utilization and back in, back opening once again. And I just I don't know if we're gonna have anything ready to go by the time Tenet's supposed to come out. I think we're gonna see that move to September. I think theaters might move to September again, just as the analysts were predicting. I think we could see movies not open until 
late September, early October. So again, kind of like what they wanted to do in July, what they're looking to do now, as of right now in August, that they want to have some weeks before they open back up again. But before they can do that, they're going to have to be able to have some kind of weeks where they're not kind of on the edge of closing down again as they have been over these last few months. So again, another big blow for the California theaters as they have now officially shut down and closed their doors once again. And this just means the indoor theaters, the drive-ins, the outdoor theaters, if people have those that are small businesses, those are still open and people can go to those, which are doing some really good business considering the fact that you can social distance and the fact that you can also premiere movies that aren't big blockbusters, of course, but you can have classical films, Palm Springs, which I'm about to talk about, is premiering at drive-in theaters around the country as well. So there's definitely stuff to check out, and theaters all around the, the, the country aren't closed down, just the indoor ones, which make up a majority of the theater chains. But if you're still looking to go out for some kind of theatrical experience, if you have a drive-in near you, that is one to definitely go check out when you have a chance, if you want some positive news in regards to the theaters. And then speaking of Palm Springs, Apparently, according to Hulu, they have broken records in regards to the amount of viewership that they've gotten for this particular film, which is starring Andy Samberg and Christine Maluti. And it is apparently, according to IndieWire, a film that broke the streaming platform's opening weekend record by netting more hours watched over its three days than any other film on Hulu during the same time period. And it generated the highest amount of social interest for any Hulu original film to date over its premiere weekend and was the most discussed Hulu original film on Twitter over its first three days. And I'm going to have a review out by tomorrow. I, again, there's going to be a whole bunch of reviews out for the rest of the week, as I saw a whole bunch over the weekend. And Palm Springs is one where I definitely can see the the appeal for people wanting to go see this again. Andy Samberg, who is a part of The Lonely Island, that is a major kind of comedic group that people really know. He's the big star there that people might want to check this film out. And when you look at a lot of the data from streaming services, it's really hard to tell. It's not like, again, you're looking at box office numbers. You're looking at at data that isn't confirmed by really Hulu or, or isn't confirmed by any of the, of the companies in terms of the actual record of numbers that you're getting. You're hearing it's breaking records left and right. Kind of the same thing that happened with, with Trolls World Tour in a way where the exact money wasn't given for how much it made in VOD, but it, it broke surmountable amounts of records according to Universal, but we don't have the exact numbers. Whereas with box office, every single weekend, people get the exact or estimated numbers of what a film made each and every weekend. With these kinds of numbers, you don't know what could potentially could be. And the thing about it is, if you look at something like Netflix, the way that they account for a view is that if you watch within a two minutes of a movie, you count as a view. So you might not make it to the movie. You might not like it and you say, you know what? I'm not watching this anymore. I'm going to watch something else. But if you're, say, 15, 20 minutes into the movie and you decide to, to check out, that counts as a view. So in some ways, it's not like they're saying if you get to the very end, if there's, say, five minutes left in, in, a, in a movie, that counts as a view because you've seen basically the entire thing from beginning to end. It's just really a short window span of saying, in this amount of time, when you can still leave and not watch the whole thing, you count as as a view. And that's for Netflix. And I'm not sure if that same thing happens with Hulu or other streaming services, but I have to think that it, it still has, in some way, it's some kind of version of that. So it's great to hear that these records are being broken 
for Hulu with original films, but not knowing the exact numbers kind of puts a little bit of a damper on it because you you don't have anything really official official. And that's why a lot of analysts, a lot of people that cover this stuff, they don't really trust it because they don't have the numbers to back it up. Whereas box office, they know every weekend they're going to have the, the stats, the numbers to back up the claims that these studios are making about their movies. So again, it, it, I'm happy for Hulu. And if this is in fact true, they did pay a lot of money for this movie. It's the highest deal breaker at a Sundance Film Festival that has ever been done before. So they paid between 20 to $17 million for this film. So if they're able to get some viewership back on this, I know Neon, which in partner for Hulu, got this film, wanted to put it in theaters. Again, like I said before, they're putting it at drive-in theaters right now. But for it not to have a theatrical experience, if they're able to make back some of it through this streaming service, then I, good for them. But again, they, there's not enough numbers. There's no numbers to back up these claims for opening weekend numbers, opening uh, the, the largest social media account that they've ever seen in terms of buzz for their movie. There's nothing really to, 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 to sample or to staple down the kind of records or the kind of numbers that these films are potentially breaking so again congratulations to hulu if it, whatever the numbers might be but again you have to take it with with a little grain of salt because again the numbers aren't there for you to to really kind of check out what do you guys think think about this with, with the fact that did palm springs really break these kinds of records if they did what do you think about them are you going to check out palm springs and again i'll have a review by tomorrow the latest for what i thought about the film that i that when i watched it over the weekend. Moving on to the final thing that I want to talk about on the Sam Bissell podcast, and we're done with the movie news for today, and, and I want to focus on a, a birthday today, and it's not an actual person's birthday, which I want to say happy birthday, which I didn't get to say yesterday, to Harrison Ford and Sir Patrick Stewart, who are some of the best actors in theater and in film over the last few decades. And then speaking of Patrick Stewart, he's included in, in this, this film birthday that is out today, and it is the 20th anniversary, the 20th birthday of the release of the first X-Men film when it came out on this date, July 14th of 2000. It was directed by Brian Singer, and it starred Hugh Jackman, Holly Berry, Sir Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen. It, the list goes on and on and on for the amount of people. Femming Jensen, the, the list is just impeccable for the kind of cast that nowadays... You would probably be able to get as well, but back then, it's to see this kind of cast is is incredible, and it really was kind of the the first film within the modern day superhero realm to give kind of success in what we know to be the comic book genre today. Before X Men really came out, there was the the superhero genre went through a phase where it was very campy, campier then than it really than some films are nowadays. And it wasn't really as taken as seriously as it was in the late 80s, early 90s with the Tim Burton Batman films or even with, with the Superman films that came out with Christopher Reeve between the second and first Superman film in, in the late 70s and early 80s. And so there, there, there went a period of time where there was not the, the superhero movies did not do well financially, especially after Batman and Robin. The only one that I can really kind of put a, a pulse on that, that did okay in, in those time periods before X-Men was the Blade franchise with Wesley Snipes. That was really the one that people kind of gravitated towards a little bit. But even then, it was more campy and, and not fully as realized as it is nowadays. And X-Men was really kind of the first film that 
integrated a lot of 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 political themes of human themes within a superhero film that made them very grounded in a world that is very kind of sci-fi with the mutants and superpowers and they introduced an incredible story with incredible action that i think made people kind of stop in their tracks and realize well wait a minute this is this is some really cool stuff that we didn't think we could do in the in the superhero world beforehand where we can be we can be campy but serious at the same exact time and kind of combine the two together. And this was kind of the first formulation of what Marvel Entertainment has become today in many facets. And it started with X-Men and then people really surmise it a lot more with Spider-Man in which X-Men was kind of the was kind of the ground child to all this. Really, it's it's kind of the one that's, I feel like, forgotten a little bit, where it didn't make a whole lot of money. It was critically well-received, but it didn't make a boatload of money compared to 2002 when Spider-Man came out, and that, at the time, scored the highest opening weekend of all time with $114 million and wasn't broken until Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, came out years, a few years, 2006, so a few years later. So th- there was a time where... Spider-Man was really thought of to be the film that really broke the ceiling and in terms it did in terms of I think financial success it did that and I think it elevated the superhero level of status to a level that X-Men started really kind of out as and Marvel slowly started to realize well this is the kind of stuff that we can do and over the the course of the mid-2000s we got films that were campy you had the Fantastic Four you had Ghost Rider you had some films that you can qualify as being crappers, but when you think about the films, you think about X-Men, X2, which kind of was the first big sequel that people were saying, wow, this this is a great sequel to a film that I really enjoyed the first time. And then same thing with, with Spider-Man 2, whereas the sequels really were, were elevated more so than the original film. And I think people started to realize, well, we can do a lot more of this stuff within these kind of films. And then, of course, we get... Nolan's Batman and and he kind of elevates his comic book genre to another level so all these different levels were kind of building blocks but it all started at the ground level with X-Men and 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 studios really realizing well we can do stories that we didn't think we could actually seem to possible or where we can incorporate different ideas in it doesn't it doesn't have to be a singular aspect of a comic book film and then the other aspects of what X-Men did was it introduced us to a lot of people. Specifically, it introduced us to Hugh Jackman, who beforehand was known in Australia, but in terms of worldwide notification, X-Men made him a star, and we're graced every single time on presence with Hugh Jackman, not just in the X-Men franchise, but also with Les Miserables and what he was able to do with The Prestige and even The Greatest Showman in a way. We're, we, we got introduced to a fantastic actor who can really do it all in, in Hugh Jackman and he made Wolverine a, a, a character that really wasn't thought of as, I think, as big as some of the others, maybe as Cyclops or Storm or Professor X, but Hugh Jackman really brought the Wolverine to the forefront and made him the face of the X-Men franchise where he was introduced to to multiple spin-offs with Wolverine and with Logan of course which is considered one of the great superhero films of all time and made it considered to be a great film of all time and for for Hugh Jackman to do what he has done over the years I think is incredible and then of course what the, the X-Men franchise did for itself 
in spearheading some great comic book films. Again, X2. And at the same time, what it was able to do with kind of lowering the expectations with X-Men The Last Stand, X-Men Origins, X-Men Apocalypse, but going then having some great highs with what we had with X-Men First Class, X-Men Days of Future Past, The Wolverine, or not The Wolverine, but Logan and The Wolverine as well. And, and, and some, some aspects Wolverine was good, some of it was bad, but still a good movie that launched the path for what we got with Logan in 2017. And then, of course, we had Deadpool, which is the highest grossing in terms of domestic box office X-Men film within the franchise. And it kind of introduced people to an R-rated comic book movie that a lot of people thought could only really just be PG-13, and that's the only way that they were going to make some mega bucks off of those films. And Deadpool proved everybody wrong on that front. So the X-Men franchise really kind of evolved the superhero genre and the comic book genre to this day, really. And and, and over the years, it's kind of stopped that. And But over the last two decades, the X-Men franchise has really kind of evolved itself and evolved the superhero franchise and the last big thing that it really did was it helped it helped the skill and it helped evolve the mastermind of what we know from the mcu to, to be kevin feige kevin feige worked on the, the earlier marvel films like x-men and spider-man and it kind of helped him realize what he wanted to do and, and how he branched off marvel studios and took some of these other ips and was able to turn them into these great films and then little by little he built his own building blocks into what became the marvel cinematic universe and probably the juggernaut that is marvel studios today so the x-men franchise the x-men film really has spun off so many things of what we know the comic book genre to be at this very moment in time and now it might not be something that made mega mega bucks in 2000 as it does in, in today's day and age but we cannot forget the the steps, the building blocks that it helped lay down in what we know the comic book genre film genre to be to this very exact day. So again, I tip my hat to everybody that worked on X-Men and what they were able to do with this franchise and with this film specifically and how it really has, again, changed the genre of what we know comic books to be today and being something that was before 2000 to be at the very, very bottom has now rose to be something that is at the pinnacle. And when you think about thrillers, action films, rom-coms, they're all secondary compared to the comic book genre, which is at the top tier where everybody wants to be in the game of comic books and and delivering those because they know that is the, the fever pitch that people are into in this day and age. And you can thank the MCU, you can think Avengers, you can thank the Dark Knight, you can thank all these other films, but... When you really trace the origins of this kind of phenomenon of the comic book genre that we're in right now, it all really kind of ties back to not 2002 with Spider-Man, which elevated it, but the very first building block, which was X-Men in 2000. And that's going to be my Twitter poll question today. Even if you're somebody who has just started to watch maybe the X-Men films or didn't really know about it until a few years ago, I'm somebody who didn't watch it until the mid to late 2000s when I really started to get into movies. So whenever you have watched the X-Men, do you still enjoy it to this day? Are you a fan of the first X-Men film? I'm talking about just X-Men in, in 2000. What did you think about it? Did you enjoy it or do you want to check it out? Let me know down below in the comment section and on the Twitter post and leave your thoughts and guys, that's going to do it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in onto the Ambiguous Network, and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out Goal Driven Professionals, geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. And also on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, you can check out Wrestle Addict Radio, Fretzel Media Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can also check out the other amazing shows that are on there at the website, ambiguousproduction.com, or excuse me, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com, and also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Candy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, make sure to follow me on social media when you're done following the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. You can find me on social media at Twitter, at Basel Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. Again, that's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And on Facebook, at Sam Basel. Thank you guys again so much. And until next time, keep on screening.